period during which he had been missing. He never returned to teach at the college, to the relief of several of my elder colleagues, who now confessed that they had thought that young Cabot had never really fitted in. Shortly thereafter, I determined that I did not fit in either, and left the college. I did receive a check from Cabot to cover the cost of my camping equipment, which he had apparently lost. It was a thoughtful gesture, but I wish instead that he had stopped to see me. I would have seized his hand and forced him to speak to me, to tell me what had happened. Somehow, unlike my colleagues at the school, I had found the amnesia account too simple. It was not an adequate explanation. It couldn't be. How had he lived for those months? Where had he been? What had he done? It was almost seven years after I'd known Tal Cabot at the college when I saw him on the streets of Manhattan. By that time, I had long ago saved the money I needed for law school and had not taught for three years. Indeed, I was then completing my studies at the School of Law associated with one of New York's best-known private universities. He had changed very little, if at all. I rushed over to him, and without thinking seized him by the shoulder. What happened next seemed almost too unbelievable to comprehend. He spun like a tiger, with a sudden cry of rage in some strange tongue, and I found myself seized in hands like steel, and with great force hurled helplessly across his knee, my spine an inch from being splintered like kindling wood. In an instant, he released me, apologizing profusely, even before recognizing me. In horror, I realized that what he had done had been as much a reflex as the blinking of an eye or the jerking of a knee under a physician's hammer. It was the reflex of an animal whose instinct it is to destroy before it can be destroyed, or of a human being who has been tooled into such an animal a human being who has been conditioned to kill swiftly, savagely, or be killed in the same fashion. I was covered with sweat. I knew that I'd been an instant from death. Was this the gentle Cabot I had known? Harrison, he cried. Harrison Smith! He lifted me easily to my feet, his words rapid and stumbling, trying to reassure me. I'm sorry, he kept saying. Forgive me, forgive me, old man. We looked at one another. He thrust out his hand impulsively, apologetically. I took it and we shook hands. I'm afraid my grip was a bit weak and that my hand shook a little. I'm really frightfully sorry, he said. There was a knot of people who had gathered standing a safe distance away on the sidewalk. He smiled, the old, ingenuous, boyish smile I remembered from New Hampshire. Would you like a drink? he asked. I smiled, too. I could use one, I said. In a small bar in midtown Manhattan, little more than a doorway and a corridor, Tal Cabot and I renewed our friendship. We talked of dozens of things, but... Neither of us mentioned his abrupt response to my greeting.
nor did we speak of those mysterious months in which he had disappeared in the mountains of New Hampshire. In the ensuing months, my studies permitting, we saw one another fairly often. I seemed to answer a desperate need for human fellowship in that lonely man, and for my part, I was more than happy to count myself his friend, unfortunately, perhaps, his only friend. I felt that the time would come when Cabot would speak to me of the mountains, but that he himself would have to choose that time. I was not eager to intrude into his affairs, or his secrets, as the case might be. It was enough to be once more his friend. I wondered, upon occasion, why Cabot did not speak to me more openly on certain matters, why he so jealously guarded the mystery of those months in which he had been absent from the college. I now know why he did not speak sooner. He feared I would have...